Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation. Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer, and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My wonderful guest today is Dr. Don DeLay. Dr. DeLay is an interdisciplinary scholar who both studies social relations and promotes these relations within science. She has published some of the first papers to use social network analysis within developmental journals. Much of her work is focused on peer relationships and understanding the influence that peers have on each other. In addition to her incredible work, Dr. DeLay is also a dedicated faculty mentor. I would know this because for full transparency, Dawn is my faculty mentor. Dawn, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you, Aubrey. I'm so happy to be here. So Dawn, the podcast starts and ends the same way. I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. These introductory ones are just to get to know you a little bit better on a surface level. And then the ending ones are going to get quick bites of your personal philosophy. The point is to just try to answer them off the top of your head in about a sentence. How does that sound? Sounds good. All right, Dawn. So my first question for you is, what is your favorite hobby? Oh, goodness. Okay, so my favorite hobby is being outdoors. I like to hike. So I think that would be my favorite hobby is walking in the woods. Yeah, I love that. So question number two is, do you have any nicknames? Or were there any funny names that your family called you when you were a kid? Oh, absolutely. So I was called Donnie. And actually, I have groups of friends that still call me Donnie. And my cousins didn't know that my name was Dawn until I was probably like 13. So I am known by a large group of people as Donnie. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So my third question, Dawn, is what does a perfect morning look like to you? Okay, I like to have a cup of coffee and I like quiet time. So I am someone that will often sit quietly and write or meditate in the morning before I kind of get my day going. That sounds like a perfect morning to me. So as we get into our conversation a little bit, one of the main things that you have uh, studied in your career has used a methodology called social network analysis. So for anyone who's totally unfamiliar with what that is, can you explain what is social network analysis? That's a good question, Aubrey. Uh, So social network analysis is, well, simply it's the study of social networks. So I use it to study social groups. So I would like, I would look at groups of people and their connections or relationships is what that would be in my work. Um, So I'm really interested in social relationships and how social relationships within groups function and how they in turn make that social group function um, for better or worse. 
to be a little more, you know, broad is anything that you could define as connections between nodes. So a node could be any kind of network. So it could be a network that's found in the brain within systems where there's connections within systems. Um, it could be an animal network where you have connections between um, animal relationships. Um, it could be trade connections. So it can be broadly applied, but I use it to study, you know, human relationships and human connections. Right. And a lot of the ways that you, you that you have used social networks has been to explore how peers, particularly adolescents, are interacting within groups. What I'm curious about is, well, what were your peer groups like when you were a kid? Was there anything that you experienced that made you wonder, wow, how do these peer groups function? And maybe that came up later when you were studying. Yeah. Absolutely. So definitely my experience has fed into the work that I, I've chosen to do. And I think I need to take a little bit of a step back that um, my family, we moved out to um, a really small town. And I was the new kid in town starting school, like elementary school. But because it was a small town in Kansas, everyone from that small town already sort of knew each other and had their connections. So the children in the town were connected by the parents' historical connections. That's sort of the environment. And I struggled with making friends and making connections um, throughout elementary school. So it was something that, you know, maybe I would have a friend here, a friend there. It would usually be someone else that had moved into the school that was sort of you know, on the outskirts of the, the social network, so to speak. And I had, you know, some social struggles. And then in my transition, um, that was a K through eight school. In my transition to high school, I ended up being connected with someone that was really high status or you might be call them popular. And so built a relationship with that person. And it was almost like overnight, my experience in that school changed. Like, it, it, nothing about me really had changed other than who I was connected to. And it made me become fascinated with this process in social groups, how, you know, groups form and function, how status hierarchies infor are informed, and um, also the meaning of our connections, like what that means for the social group and how much of it is um, really based on individuals and individual characteristics or some kind of larger structural system. Um, so for example, in that transition period, I ended up being like structurally connected with somebody if there's like a, a group status hierarchy that was at a higher status and then it opened all this access to these other connections and other people within the network that wanted to, you know, have, you know, resource exchange. In this case, it would be like have conversations, invite me to do things. Like suddenly I was part, you know, of the system in a way that I had never been before. Uh, and it really made me think that groups and the structure of groups are really powerful. And there are certain people within these groups that hold a lot of power. And later in my work, you know, with children and adolescents, I'm interested in looking at these groups and thinking about those structural positions on who could be leaders, who could be connectors, who could create, you know, positive kinds of 
um, change to create a healthier, happier, you know, group or system. So that's sort of my backstory as far as how I got really interested in groups and relationships and how that all functions. That is so interesting, Dawn. I think that that really parallels an experience that I had when I was younger, where I moved into a school system when I was in third grade. And unfortunately, I was bullied a lot and I didn't have very many friends. And then when I was in high school, I moved to a different town. So I joined a new high school and I just was so amazed at how my network totally opened because I was now in this group of people where, you know, any pre conceived notions about me as like a bullied kid just weren't there. And it was really interesting how my social, really just how my social functioning changed so much overnight. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's a powerful thing having that, you know, kind of individual identity and the group, you know, how that, how that group interacts with that individual identity and how you can change into another system or group and have a completely different experience. Um, you know, and my, you know, again, like my goal would be that we create healthy systems and healthy groups for all children, all identities, you know. Um, so that's really kind of the motivation behind my work. Yeah. Okay, Dawn, so you went to high school, got through high school, and then you moved on to college and you majored in psychology. When you decided to go to grad school, what was that decision like? Did you immediately go from undergrad into grad school or did you have a sort of different transition? Yeah, good question. I actually had an idea that I wanted to go to grad school. I was pretty certain about that. But I was not certain exactly what I wanted to study. And um, I had also gone to a small um, liberal arts school where I had a great education, wonderful educators, uh, but I didn't have a lot of opportunities to engage in research and getting like broader exposure. So what I decided to do is after I graduated, I think I applied to maybe just a couple of schools, like my very top choices. And I decided if I wasn't gonna get into those top choices that I was gonna spend this time to get more experience. And so I graduated um, also with an early childhood education um, degree. So I, um, I was able to teach. I was, so I took a, a two years where I was teaching preschool and watching the preschool groups and preschool networks and how they function, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then I also worked at, um, some universities. So the university of Kansas, for example, um, and I volunteered my time as a research assistant and got some more experience that way. So did like conference presentations and worked on some projects and I helped graduate students. I was helping to collect data in foster homes in Kansas City at the time. So giving questionnaire interviews to students and just getting some more background in what research was. Um, so that I can make a decision on what I wanted to do with my psychology degree, because I wasn't really sure. I, 
I knew um, that the program I had graduated from had like a counseling program, but I wasn't aware of all the different options that I might have as far as graduate school. And once I got exposed to research and doing that kind of work, I was, I was very interested in pursuing that. And so that's ultimately why I chose to work um, with a developmental psychologist to get my, my graduate degree so I could continue um, to do some of that work. That's great. So what was that experience like when you were applying to grad school? How did you find your program or get connected with your mentor? Well, so the second time I applied, I applied more broadly. Um, and I always say that it's really important that whether you you know, if you're invited to a program that you want to meet the people that you're going to be working with. So um, I definitely went on a lot of interviews to, to find out more about like the culture and the community and also meet my supervisor, my potential supervisors. Um, and I learned a lot that way. And ultimately what ended up happening is my supervisor, part of what I had done in the two years that I, before I went back to school is I had gone to um, Finland and I had actually been in the preschools there working as, um, I was an assistant teacher because I wasn't fluent in, in Finnish, but I was working in the schools there and doing an intercultural education program. And my supervisor um, who ended up being Brett Larson, who is, um, you know, a very well-known developmental psychologist that studies um, peer relationships. And um, he recruited me very heavily because of my time spent in Finland because he had collaborators in Finland. So right away, um, there was that connection of that shared kind of background and experience, um, which is a lot of what we see in networks, how, you know, sometimes similarities um, will foster different kinds of relationships, which in this case, it fostered a mentor-mentee relationship for graduate school. Um, but that was, that was exciting for me to have the opportunity to potentially go back to Finland and continue to build those connections. And it has also opened the door to making my work, you know, more international. So I do work and collaborate broadly um, within the US, but also internationally. Um, and so that was a really great, you know, choice for me. I felt like I got wonderful training in graduate school. I, I learned a bit more about the importance of relationships and networking. Uh, and ultimately, I, I landed at ASU. I'm very happy here as, a, as an assistant professor today. So do you ever feel like your work with preschoolers ever comes up or feels relevant when, you know, maybe you're working with undergraduate students or even just within uh, academia as a whole? Were there any things that you learned while working with preschoolers where that still feel relevant to you now? Yeah, you know, I, I've always been fascinated by social functioning and social groups and dynamics and and identity, how that interplays. And uh, I learned, I did learn a lot. I learned a lot about not taking yourself too seriously, smiling <laughs> often. You know, that's one thing that preschoolers definitely will teach, teach you. Um, and I also learned, I remember watching 
um, the children in my class interact and how I was, uh, there was a period where I was in a, uh, like a three, two and a half to three and a half. So kind of like that three to four age group. And there was this process where early on when the children were younger, they were very kind of able to interact, play with any toy, interact with anybody in the room. Um, and then later there would be more judgments as far as like um, who they were interacting with. I saw this a lot happen along gender lines. So like you're a girl, so you don't do this or you're, you know, and, and there's a few students in particular that I felt like that really affected them. So I don't know that this relates necessarily. I know your question was more, how does it translate to like older networks and groups? But I think I, how it translates is that we still can face those pressures, right? There can still be this tendency to say, well, I really want to have this interaction or I really want to have this collaboration, but I can't because whatever the because might be. And so um, I, you know, both as a teacher with young children in a classroom, aim to foster interconnections and relationships across whatever types of boundaries they may have been um, exposed to and starting to identify. Um, but I also try to do that in my work today. And I, I talk about it when I do teach undergraduates and graduate students about the importance of looking across perspectives and looking outside of um, the box of whatever, you know, your particular background or training might be. Um, having that understanding that there, there is going to be different perspectives and that's okay. Um, that doesn't have to be a distancing mechanism or a threat. It can actually be something that uh, could build a very strong, you know, collaborative relationship where, you know, for students could foster opportunities, could foster your research or your work um, in, a, in a productive, you know, kind of way. So, um, hopefully I kind of answered the question in a roundabout way there. No, I think that was a fantastic answer. I, you know, you've really driven home how important it is for all of us to try to be interdisciplinary uh, in our work, especially as researchers, right? And I think it's, you know, most people I think can understand conceptually like what interdisciplinary work looks like on, you know, sort of a theoretical level, but can you elaborate a little bit on, you know, what does it look like to be interdisciplinary at a methodological level? And why is it important that we would, you know, examine the different statistical approaches that are used in different uh, fields? Yeah. Well, in short, I think we can learn a lot from each other. So what happens often within fields is we're sharing information and we're building science in a certain way and we're building language around that science. And there could be something very um, similar or maybe something that's going to be complementary to the work you know, within one silo happening in another. Um, I see this a lot, language is a big thing. So I see that um, often we will say something to the effect of, 
I know of no other work that's examined X, Y, Z, um, where that may be actually happening just outside of someone's discipline or field. So having that kind of connection and maybe having a slightly different perspective on that work, in my view, strengthens the work. Uh, so I think that's one reason that, that this kind of interdisciplinary collaborative science is important. You asked about methods in particular. My view is I am not a methods purist. Like I teach networks, I use network um, science often, but I believe that there's a lot of different methods that we have. And I also believe that the best we can do is have knowledge about these different methods, be open to these different approaches so that maybe we can combine across methodologies and we can strengthen our work um, in that way. Uh, there's also the issue, you know, um, you talked about statistical approaches, but there's also different uh, methodological approaches such as quantitative versus like qualitative. I don't even like saying versus, but it can be, you know, if you bring that work together and are you're, maybe you're not an expert and none of us can be an expert in all things, but if we're willing to collaborate across um, whether it's disciplinary or methodological lines, uh, my view is that that will likely strengthen our work. And um, I feel that science is at risk if we hold too tightly to like, this is the right way to do things. Uh, because at that point, when we say this is the right way to do things, we've closed our mind to all those other perspectives and possibilities. Um, so I think that it's important for those reasons. Yeah, I think keeping an open mind in science is pretty much always a good thing, right? It allows us to get a greater depth of knowledge with whatever subject we're looking at. And it also lets us see the interconnectedness of different fields and different disciplines. Yes, I agree. So one thing that I was curious about is if you could talk to us a little bit about what was your first experience with social network analysis? Like walk me through the first time you ever even heard the term social network analysis. And was it something you were just immediately infatuated with or were you sort of like, mm, I don't know what this thing is? Yeah. Well, so this was very new. I, I was trained as a developmental psychologist and this was not in um, the field really at the time because my first work with social network analysis, I was, a, I was a graduate student. I was getting ready to start my master's thesis. And to give a little bit of the backstory, I had started my master's thesis using a different type of model that was really common in developmental psychology, which was a growth model. And I had it, you know, I'd been working on it. Some things, you know, I learned some things about the data where I, I decided I couldn't use this, this project and I needed a new project. And as a student, I will say it was really devastating, but I was so devastated that my, my thesis had fallen apart that I was, just so open to like, well, now I can do whatever I want. 
So I'm just going to do whatever I want. I've, I've spent all this time on this thesis, but now I, I have to let it go. And I was open to trying something new. And I had heard about this process, this program, social network analysis that people were using in Europe. And as I said, I had some connections there. Uh, I had um, connections at the time in, in Finland and Sweden. And I had a couple people that I knew there that were starting to use these models. And I was fascinated at the idea that up until this time in my study of relationships, I had looked at dyads and the interactions between dyadic interac interactions, which are very complex and there's unique methods that you need to look at those interactions. But I was so excited that you could include all of the dyadic interactions at one time, look at the entire network and how everyone's interacting with everyone else. Uh, this idea of identity or individual individuality within the network was there because you could look at individual characteristics and agency within these social groups. Uh, and you can also look at the level of the social groups. So I was so excited about this method. And in a way I knew nothing really about what I was getting myself into because it was really new at the time. And it was really kind of a clunky um, you know, system like we had um, now social network analysis can be run within R and, and there's some syntax and programming, but it wasn't so user-friendly when I first started. Um, and I actually uh, ended up traveling again um, to work with some folks in Finland that were using this method. And that's how I first got exposed and decided that I wanted to use it for my master's thesis. So I told my graduate supervisor uh, that I wanted to use this for my master's thesis. And he gave me a couple weeks to think about it and asked me if I was sure I wanted to do this a few times. And if I knew what I was getting myself into a few times and I was sure I wanted to do it. <laughs> and, um, and I'm glad that I did. Like I, I, it's a wonderful method. But as I would say, when I'm, I'm teaching my students, there was a lot for, there was a lot to learn. There was a lot of language. I was, uh, this developed within sociology. So I was visiting um, sociology departments and talking to sociologists to learn more about the method. Um, and there was different ways that things were done um, within, you know, sociology versus my background in psychology. But, but again, I feel like both having both perspectives has really influenced and fed into my work. And, and I believe that it has strengthened uh, the work that I'm, that I'm able to do. But there was a period of being really uncomfortable for a really long time, not knowing, you know, a lot of the language or, or trying to figure out these models, um, communicate, you know, internationally to try to get some, some training. And, and later on, I, I had more, you know, formal training where I was able to get uh, more formal training in social network analysis. But that you, you kind of asked about how I got to my first experience and, and that, that was it. I just decided, you know, if this, this fell through, so I'm just going to go for, you know, what I, what my dream, you know, method would be, which as I told you, I really wanted to look at social groups um, 
and that individual agency within those social groups. So it seemed like it was a, it was a good fit. So. Well, I think that says so much about you that, you know, this original plan sort of fell through. And I think most people would have said, all right, well, what's the easiest thing that I can do next to just get this thing done? Whereas you were basically like, let's just explore this entirely new method. And, you know, you really have put yourself at the forefront of social network analysis. And it, it's really incredible. That probably took a lot of bravery to do that, especially since you didn't really have anyone with you who was also using that method. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, Aubrey. I've looked back on it and I think, Sometimes it's nice, you know, to not know what you don't know, because I, I saw this, all the potential and I didn't, you know, fully understand, I think what I was taking on, probably my graduate supervisor who was saying, are you sure? Do you know what you're doing? But, uh, you know, again, I was sure I wanted to do this because it was exactly the work that I wanted to do. And then I had the support you know, along the way. So uh, I'm sh my, my graduate supervisor has also learned quite a lot about social network analysis, you know, as he was supporting me through that, you know, training, so. Yeah. Well, I think that makes us very similar in the sense that, you know, I think oftentimes when people think of us as a mentor and a mentee, we can sometimes come across as a little bit of an odd couple pairing because, you know, here you are this very talented methodologist working in social networks. And then I'm doing all of this stuff with body image. And I think some people are like, wait a second, how does this work out? But really where we have so much common ground is that, you know, we both, put ourselves at the forefront of this thing that we're really passionate about. And, you know, I've always appreciated that you've just encouraged me to just reach for the stars with everything because, you know, why not? Um, and I think that it's probably because of your experience with networks and, you know, you went for it and you did it. And I think that that's so admirable. Thank you, Aubrey. And and I do encourage you because you are incredibly talented. <laughs> oh, thank you, Dawn. Um, so one question that I had for you, moving on to a little bit of a different path is, you know, sort of about your role of service in, you know, your position as an academic, because looking at your CV, you have done so much service in your time here at ASU. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit, maybe for people who are listening, who aren't really familiar with academia, you know, why is service important for an academic to do? And, you know, what does service sort of mean to you? That's a great question. I, so Service is something that I am passionate about um, within academia and within my personal life. I, so there's two parts of this. I, I feel that service is really important and it's important for me because there were a lot of people that were willing to do service that guided me you know, I was just talking about my graduate supervisor, uh, but there's been a lot of other people in my life 
that have provided service, mentorship, something like that for me in my career. And, and just to give you some background, uh, I, I was a first generation student. So I really didn't, I didn't have anyone in my family that knew what I needed to do, you know, who I needed to contact, how I was going to, you know, support myself through school financially, or really what the expectations might be once I was there. And there were a lot of people that have reached out, you know, and provided service for me over the years to be able to be where I am today. Um, and so I guess when it comes to service to academia and to, you know, things that like, I don't know if you would consider mentorship service or teaching, but, you know, working with, you know, junior scholars, um, graduate students, that's something that I'm very open to at ASU, but also more broadly, uh, if students come to me looking for direction because I needed that direction, I also wanna be sure that I am uh, providing, you know, the support that students will need to advance their career through reviewing manuscripts and things like that, serving as program reviewers, helping conferences be organized, uh, and also at the university, again, um, supporting the university is important to me. Supporting my school is important to me because I want, I mean, selfishly, I want a healthy, happy, you know, functioning university and school and a welcoming place for, you know, especially for students to be able to come and learn and train and then advance their career. So for me, I'm very grateful for the experience that I've had going through academia and I didn't have the answers, but it always seemed like there was someone, you know, and I also think about, you know, staff positions, the times where I would just get on the phone and call because I didn't know who I was supposed to be asking the question to, and I would be directed to where I needed to go. Um, so all those little things over the years, when again, if we're talking about like a social system or structure, like I had no status, I had no, you know, I was, it was nobody to that university or that school, but it was really important that someone was willing to offer that hand to me. And so I try to remember that and give back in the ways that I can. I will say just uh, putting on like a, a mentorship hat, like everything else, you have to keep it in balance, right? Like there's gonna be ways, depending on what your career of choice is, that service will be evaluated in your life. And I do believe in a life balance. So it's gonna be really important that um, stay mindful of that. That's something that I've had to remind myself that, you know, yes, service is good, but there has to also be the balance there so that the other pieces are also in place and you can continue to advance yourself and your career so that you can continue to give back um, in the ways that you would like to. 
Right. And I think that's wonderful advice to hear, particularly from a faculty member. Um, so often, I think as a grad student, we feel this pressure to be working constantly. And it's really easy to forget to have balance in your life. And I think it's really important that, you know, we hear more faculty talking about the importance of balance and how you cultivate balance in your life. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, as we sort of transition towards the end of the podcast, I'm wondering, Dawn, is there anything that, you know, you wanted to end on or anything that you wanted to say? Um, we'll have a title card up if you're watching on video or Dawn's information will be in the show notes if you're looking to contact her. But I'm just wondering, is there anything that you would like to end on? Well, I just want to say thank you so much for this experience. It's been really fun. And uh and just the exposure that you're you're giving to ideas. Um, and so thank you for that, Aubrey. And also, I guess so I just want to say relationships matter. <laughs> so so be kind, you know, to to the people in your life. And um, and I think that's all I, I want to say. So thank you. Of course. So we're now going to do our final three questions. So these are going to be the questions that allow us to get a little bite of your personal philosophy. Um, you can answer them with as much length as you'd like. If you want to talk about these in more depth, that's totally fine. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So question number one, Dawn, is what is something that you are certain of? I don't know at all. <laughs> I think that is something we can all be certain of. So the next question is, what does balance mean for you? Wow, that's a great question. What does balance mean? Uh, I, for me, it's being in that comfortable place where I know that I'm contributing and giving back, but I'm also not overwhelmed and feeling, you know, any kind of fear or anxiety. So I think that requires different things like that. It requires me to take care of myself that it requires me to take care of personal relationships. And that requires me to show up, you know, for my work and my, my career in a meaningful way. And I can usually do that if I take care of those, you know, other places. So I think that's a balance we all strive for. So my last question, Dawn, is what is one rule that you would want everyone to follow? I think I'm going to go back to be kind. I think that's wonderful. So thank you so much, Dawn. I have so appreciated you having this conversation with me today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Looking forward to it, Aubrey. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. If you would like to connect with today's podcast guests, please email the following for Aubrey Hoffer email alhoffer at asu.edu. For Don DeLay, email don.delay at asu.edu.
Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesanfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.